There are different kinds of messages with uh, different kinds of purposes. I, I normally love to give a message where really the driving purpose is people just come and rest and know you're loved, you know. I try to make that normally my go-to message. Having said that, this is not that message. Um, There are messages where it's like, hey, come and rest. Hear this. And then there are other messages that are more like a call to action. I don't know what you need this morning. Maybe actually you need a come and rest. And I'm going to pray for you that, that God will come and give you the rest that you need. But I have a sneaking feeling just being a church in America, we kind of need the other kind of message, which is, all right, God's people, it's a call to action. And uh, I do believe that's where God is taking us this morning. But here's the thing. Did you know that we have a website and we have podcasts of messages? And today is a part two, and we're, we did a part one last week, and really, the first part of the message was just about the big story of God that inspires us. And so, by all means, please um, listen to that podcast, like, not now, but, um, but later. And I think that'll give you all the inspiration of Christ that we need. Uh, so, having said that, would you all stand up? And uh, I, I gotta let you know, I, I, I'm like wrestling with exhaustion this morning. I'm not saying that so you'll throw some pity my way. Although some pity wouldn't be bad. I mean, in the form of grace. Um, But I've been asking God for a double portion of his spirit because I need it. Uh, Maybe we all need it. And so if we just make our hearts receptive, I'm uh, pretty sure our good, amazing God is going to deliver like he always does. So join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we are going to talk about the young rich man today, and I do remember, as I read the scripture, that when you looked at him, you looked at him with love, and I I just want our heart to know that we uh, are being gazed into with eyes of love, and this message is a message that comes from a father who loves us so much, loves us so much and accepts us, but calls us to change because he loves us. And I just pray, Father, that as we're speaking and going through the scripture today, that is the voice of the Holy Spirit that would be speaking. Uh, Church, I'd like to invite you just to open up your your hands and to, to kind of raise them to heaven. Father, you know where we've been. Uh, You know where we've been this week. You know what we're thinking about. I pray that this heart, this heart right here, would be clear and purified so we can listen to you, the voice of love. And even your challenge and encouragement comes from your heart of love. So we pray, Holy Spirit, as we wait upon you, you would be speaking to every person here giving us tools that we didn't have before, giving us wisdom to apply 
given us new ways to think about maybe some old concepts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to start by saying that I was discipled by my mother on how to think about money. Now, I use the word discipled, but my mom would never use that word. She didn't give lectures about money and finances, but what she did is she modeled a certain way of approaching money and finances, and like it or not, that made a huge impact on me. Now, my mom grew up in the era of World War II, and Taiwan at the time was occupied by Japan, and so the operative word for her, two operative words were scarcity and survival. So the people who survived were the ones who knew how to be resourceful, who knew how to save and to scrounge and in a sense to hoard and to save and to hoard and to save. And so something grew in my mom's heart, even in childhood, that um, her kids would later kind of tease her and make fun of her, but we call it the gospel of frugality. And my mom... (laughs) Uh, would preach this gospel and she would live by it. So it's interesting that through the first 17 years of my life, this was modeled to me. It was a certain kind of approach to money. And so during this series, we've been talking about live simple. And there's something of a template that I grew up with, which is like, yes, absolutely, I get it. Live simple. Don't be wasteful. Live simple. Make as much money as you can. Save as much money as you can, because you might need it on a rainy day. In fact, my mom would go on to take that money, use it, invest it, thinking that that money will make more money. Now, I'm just wondering how many of us here have that same mentality and that same approach when it comes to money. We say, live simply. You're like, yeah, that was modeled to me. We say, save money. Well, uh, maybe it was modeled to you, save money. And you're like, yep, save it all you can for a rainy day. And And when it comes to investment, yes, invest so you can grow more money. And that is the basic approach. Now, I'm wondering if you guys are with me, if you guys can resonate with that, if you guys can relate to that. Maybe you had 17 years of training, of thinking about money in a certain way. And then, at some point, maybe this is you, you encountered Jesus And Jesus comes into your life and he says two words, which are, follow me. And then you open up the Bible and he starts to teach us everything that is countercultural to what we've been trained and what we've learned, uh, countercultural from what our, our culture says. It's like what Jesus is teaching us kind of goes against maybe most things, maybe everything that we've been taught by our parents. So let me just say that after 17 years of life, disciple to think in a certain way about money, it's probably hard for us overnight to think differently about money. I mean, we've been trained to think about it for so long that it might be hard to break out of those patterns. And it might not just happen radically overnight. 
And can we just acknowledge that? Is that true? I see one person nodding. Now, someone once said, uh, these are, I don't know if these are words to remember or to live by, but someone once said, the cheap runs deep. You guys want to say that with me? The cheap runs deep. Now, now maybe, maybe you're not cheap. Maybe it doesn't run deep. But when it comes to like matters of money and how we think, man, it runs deep. It runs deep. So in a sense, it's going to take a miracle for us to radically think differently about money. And in fact, it might take a lifetime. But it certainly will take a miracle of God. And luckily, Jesus says that what is impossible with men and women is very possible to God. Turn with me to Mark 10. We're going to start in 17. This might be a passage that you're used to. We're going to go through it quickly. If you're not used to it, I encourage you to study it more in depth in your own time. But we're going to have to uh, really uh, move quickly because what I like to do is have a good portion of time where we can talk about practical things. We can roll up our sleeves and really get to some nitty-gritty um, Last week, we're talking about the heart, and then someone said, uh, Pastor, you're talking about the heart. Can you go a little bit more practical than what I want to do this day, this morning, is actually get more practical. I want to talk about specific issues of finance, and hopefully, by God's grace, we're going to give you some wisdom that you can take, wisdom that you can distill, wisdom that you might use uh, when, you, when you go back home. Okay, so here it is, but we start with the scripture. Mark ten seventeen. There is a young man, there's a rich man who eagerly approaches Jesus and asks him one simple, all-important question, which is this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes on to say to him, one, one thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, in this interaction, Jesus was clearly exposing this man's allegiance to his possessions. If this man were to follow Jesus and give away everything, that would involve totally trusting in Jesus, abandoning everything the man had. And so fundamentally, what this man would need is a totally new heart. It's not like Jesus said, go sell everything, and just by virtue of him selling everything, he's guaranteed to never lust after material things again. No, there's an expectation that this man would be radically transformed by the gospel. Now, uh, I need to ask you this question, because um, when it comes to this passage, there's, there's, there's a lot at stake. And so here's the first question where there's, we're, we're putting a lot on this question. Uh, first of all, does Jesus call every person to sell all they have and give to the poor? Your answer is yes, no, or it depends. Turn to a neighbor next to you and give them your one-word Short answer, go. All right. I heard someone say no, and someone say it depends. 
I didn't hear anyone say yes, okay? A- anyone here, like, my, my friend is bold, just put it out there, said yes. Okay, I would say, I would say most people say no. And here's the thing, I would agree with you. The New Testament does not support that understanding. Even some of the disciples still had a home, probably still had a boat. They probably still had kind of some material support. So uh, in my best read, I would say uh, no. Uh, But let's go on. Clarifying everything they got. Okay, no. Okay, but then here's the second question. Does that mean that Jesus never calls his followers to abandon all the possessions and follow him? Turn to someone next to you, give them the word, one word answer, yes, maybe, no, go. All right, that one's easier. I heard a lot of people say no. Now, 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 here's the thing. Okay, I'm asking the big questions that come from this text. <laughs> but let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, uh, let me take this a different way. I actually feel like these are probably not the best questions to ask of the text. I actually feel like this is too binary a way to read this text. So, so people read this and they go, well, yeah, some people get called to sell everything they got. And uh, I don't think that's me. So I don't have to really do this. Right? And that's too binary a way. Like he, he says, yes, I do it. Uh, but he says no to most people, so I, I, get, I, I don't have to really apply. I, I think a better way to interpret this passage, and, and I'm using the whole counsel of Scripture, I think a better way to interpret this passage is that God calls all of us to be radically generous with the poor. Let me say that again. I think God calls all of us to be radically generous with the poor. And don't get too caught up on numbers. It's either 100% or zero. With Zacchaeus, when he had an encounter with God in the face of Jesus Christ, how much did Zacchaeus feel inspired to give away? It was, it was 50%. It was half. Um, in 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonians were like really poor but they wanted to get in on a collection that was being raised for the Jerusalem poor, who were even more poor than they were. Now, we don't even know the numbers, but we know that they gave from sacrifice. Don't get caught up in the numbers. The numbers are different. But let's say this. Let's say you were to think more about the numbers. Then it might be worth asking, what kind of person would Jesus call to go and sell everything they have? What was it about this man that made Jesus say what he said? One writer puts it like this, trying to answer this question. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. And let me say that. So it's like, if you're reading this and you get comfort, like it's not all Christians, maybe that's actually a sign that God is calling you. Oh, there you go. There you got it. The penny just dropped. You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> Good. Good. Maybe that's some good tension we're sitting on right now. God calls all of us to be radically generous with the poor. Now, uh, if you 
concretely would like to know, well, what's that number? Then perhaps, okay, for, for all the people who are number-driven, maybe that number is the number that would displace your idolatry that we all have. Let me say that again. Maybe the number is the number that would displace your idolatry that we all have. For this young rich ruler, it was everything you got. Everything you got. You know, it is interesting when we talk about money, we talk about the potential of money that it has to entangle you. It's kind of like it could entangle you. So then when we're talking to college students, it's kind of like, hey, college students, when, when you're out there and you're working and you, and you get your first paycheck, it could entangle you. But I, I don't really feel like that's an honest depiction of what's going on. Is it like it could entangle you after you get your first paycheck? Or are we born into a world and a culture that's bombarding us with messages about money and finances and how to think about that? And then can it be that we're born into a system and we have parents who are modeling certain things about money and finances? Could it be that we're already born entangled? That we've long been having a false perception of money. Can it be that the starting place is not freedom, but the starting place is entanglement and Jesus comes to free us? Now, it's interesting. Last week we gave the teaching that downward mobility is not necessarily having less stuff, but having your stuff mean less to you. But there is some paradox to this because maybe you have a lot of stuff and that stuff does mean a lot to you. And so you ask, how can I grow in my economic discipleship? You ask, how can I be free from the entanglement of my stuff? And ironically, paradoxically, one go-to strategy is by having less stuff. It's by giving away your stuff and giving more and more of your heart to Jesus. Someone says, I want Jesus to mean more to me and my stuff to mean less to me. What can I do? And it seems that the prescription that Jesus gives the young rich man is this. Give away all this stuff that entangles you, entangles your heart, means so much to you, and come and follow me. Maybe the rich man's like, well, what do I get out of it? And then Jesus goes, did, did, did you not hear me saying this out of love? Come and follow me. You get me. You get me. What a deal. But you know, the young rich man couldn't part with his stuff. He couldn't separate from it. And so the scripture says that he left as a very sad man. Now I think the next part is important, so I'm going to go through this quickly. But Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this statement is many things. It's brilliant insight to the suffocating problem that rich people have. It's also an explanation for why Jesus asked this rich man to give up all his stuff. Because it's really hard, according to Jesus, to have a lot of stuff and to live in a world with a lot of stuff and to not get your heart entangled in all that stuff. 
and then for that stuff to kind of choke you and suffocate you. It's really hard to be rich with stuff and have your heart be free. But then Jesus gives this word of hope to everyone here. He says that what's impossible for us is not impossible for God. But you can't walk away from this teaching and not have heard Jesus said, look, you need to hear this warning. This warning is super important. Okay, now I, I, I promised you that at some point in this series where we talk about our mission as a church, about um, how we serve the world, that we're going to address practical financial issues. Now we kind of go into like the seminar uh, portion of our time this morning. And I, I just want you guys to know that there's really so much stuff that we could cover, and I really have so much little time, so I won't be able to cover owning property in the Bay Area. Some of you are like, thank you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, the thing is, most of us just aren't there right now. And uh, I, I want it to be more relevant to some of the urgent issues that are right here, right now. Um, so if you want to talk about owning property in the Bay Area, I'm game for that conversation anytime. But I did want to talk about things like retirement. I want to talk about things like um, <clears throat> Our children's education, uh, I want to talk about savings uh, in, in general um, and some specific issues. Now, I'll tell you what I did in researching this talk. I had lunch with uh, Pastor Gary Vanderpaul. He did, like, is, is he qualified for this sort of conversation? He did a doctorate dissertation on economic discipleship. So I kind of feel like I'm talking to a man who knows what he's talking about. And he spent a lot of time researching this topic, looking through the scriptures, considered these things very carefully. So I, I think his words hold some credibility here. And so I'm meeting with him over lunch. And, you know, for me, like, I'm uh, 40 years old, and I'm, so I've, I've chosen a certain path in life. I do, I would be honest with you, I do own property, and I do save for retirement, and I, and I have saved for uh, my child's education. So I'm already on a certain path, and I'm totally prepared uh, to, for, to, in this conversation for him to look at me and say something like, hey, brother, I biblically frown upon you for owning property. I'm prepared for that conversation. You know, like, there's gonna be, there might be some tension in this conversation, and so I'm prepared, but I decided I was going to get on his good side. So I said, Gary, I'd like to treat you to lunch today. You know, um, just trying to... Yeah, so, and so I asked him, in all that you know from the scriptures and all that you've learned from economic discipleship, how do you think Christians should approach retirement? And that was the first starting place. Um, is it even biblical to save for that? Let's go and start there. Let's talk about retirement. Here are some of the things that he shared with me. Uh, you know, the New Testament doesn't really talk about retirement, but if we're going to build a case for retirement, we probably need to go to the Old Testament, look at Proverbs, and see the value for savings. Solomon illustrates this as the hardworking ant who stores for winter. Can that be a case for retirement? Yeah, I suppose so. By saving for retirement, you're putting away money to support yourself when the income com isn't coming in, and a key, but the key abiding principle the one word I want you to remember when you are saving for retirement is simple. When you calculate how much retirement is enough, are you planning for a simple living during retirement? 
I'm, I'm good with, with, with simple and, and one word value to kind of remember as you're thinking about retirement. But this is where I'm kind of like pushing back on Gary. Like, okay, simple li- living, like, what's, what is that? Different people are going to define it differently. So, look, if, 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 am I going to, am I going to share this with my congregation? They're going to go home and look at all the receipts and plug away at their spreadsheet and just like track how simple they can live for months and months. That just sounds like a lot of work. I could say simple, but I don't, can you give us more, Gary? I'm asking him for something more practical and helpful. And here's what he told me. He said, go on Google. Actually, some of you might want to do that now. I, I don't mind if you do that now. And you go on Google and type living wage calculator. I want to give you a very practical tool. The first option, and I, so I went home and actually did this. The first option is a website that's put forth by MIT. I'm thinking, okay, MIT, that's, that sounds credible. And uh, you can pick which county you live in. I, I clicked on Alameda County. And it takes me to this website where someone has already crunched all the numbers to determine how much money you need having all your basic necessities met. We're, we're, we're talking like uh, food, uh, child care, health insurance, transportation. All right, you want something practical? I don't know if something can be more practical than that. Maybe some of you are like, can you be even more practical, Pastor Andrew? Can you give me a number? I- I'm at the risk of entering into legalism. I'm going to give you a number, just, just, just so you have something practical, okay? Um, <clears throat> uh, in Alameda County, for one adult, actually it might be uh, uh, worth a, a round of having you guess what it, it might cost to live simply in, actually that might be fun. Uh, why don't you turn to someone next to you and give them what you think might be the best number for ba- basic necessity kind of living in the Bay Area, one adult, uh, go. For one year. Just, I just, I'm curious to know what people think. Okay. Um, have the other person guess now. All right. Uh, there's no wrong number. Unless you're way off, then I'm going to shame you. Okay. Uh, Denny, just, what number you gave? I'm just curious. 53. All right, 53. All right, um, uh, what did you get, Brian? 25. It's a lot of instant raw men. I like that. Uh, Mike, what did you, what, what did you get? Uh, Laura, Jeff, what did, you guys, what did you guys think? 36, okay. All right, uh, if I was on and had a box full of Kit Kat, I would give it to Jeff. Uh, the, the answer, I'm rounding down by $269, is $34,000. Now, if you look on last week's message, it's like $34,000, according to Paul, is all you need to be happy, to really be happy. And it's like, hey, do you believe Paul? Uh, okay, we're putting it into numbers. Two adults, it goes, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, one-to-one, it's like, Two adults is 52,000. So maybe in a sense, there's benefits to being married, you know? Okay. um, 
Let's move on. I think I've given you enough practicality to chew on. Uh, let's go on to kids' education. Okay, this was an interesting conversation I had with Dr. Gary. Um, uh, he says this. He goes, I got a friend by the net of, name of Ed Chang. He's like, you can share this with your church. From Indiana, and he went to Purdue. I'm like, you know, this could be very offensive. But um, so Purdue, I don't know what you think about Purdue. I, I don't know much about Purdue. I think it's a decent school. It's probably not elite, you know, okay, but it's a decent school. And so Gary goes on, and now he's making six figures, and he works for a big-name company. He says, my point is, <laughs> you'll love this. He goes, my point is this. Don't waste your money on private schools. Okay, some of you are finding this offensive. This is where I go, these are not my words, these are Gary's words. You see, you see how we do that, you know? Um, I, I realize, you're like, uh, Pastor Andrew, I sent my kid to a private school. Uh, generally speaking, okay, look, I'm not judging anyone. No one's judging anyone. We're not in the business of judging, all right? Um, having said that, I think there's some wisdom here. Maybe that's not the wisest usage of money. It's a lot of money, by the way, the difference between public and private school. Um, so you've sent your kids to private school. God bless you. Good for you. But for those who haven't sent your kids to school or a private school, there might be some wisdom that Dr. Gary is espousing here. Consider it. Consider it. If you get anything from this, this part, consider this. If anything, get this. No Stanford. Yeah, that's really the point. Okay. Um, state schools, cool. Cal's not bad. But no Stanford. Priscilla is giving me an icy stare right now. Just don't, I'm not going to look in that direction. Okay, but um, that's some wisdom for you to consider. Here's another tip Gary gave me. When it comes to inheritance, this is the mentality. I'm saving all I can to give my kids all I can. Have you read Ecclesiastes? When it comes to inheritance, don't leave it all to your kids. All that money could very well make them weak. And according to the warning of Jesus, all that money could poison their souls. Leave money enough for them to live simply. Leave enough so that the basic necessities are provided for, but they have to rely upon God for future provision. I want them to have a legacy of relying upon God and having God come through. Normally that doesn't come with a lot of inheritance. Uh, Gary was suggesting, after this I'm going to stop mentioning Gary, uh, how about as a, as a plan going forward, giving half to the poor when we talk about inheritance. Again, uh, new ideas, old concepts. Why not make that your standard? God says, love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds kind of like, if you're getting into numbers and legalism, kind of sounds like 50-50. Maybe we should apply it straightforwardly. Uh, I, I want to give you a story of this, and uh, this story comes from a man by the name of Tom Shea. Uh, he's a alumni from Claremont McKenna, which is uh, Raina, my wife's alma mater, and she knows him. 
Yeah. Um, they, she and Tom went to the same college fellowship together. Uh, he moved into the inner city of Pomona. He makes six figures, but he lives on the national median income, which moved him from the 99 percentile all the way down uh, to the 98th percentile. But why don't you uh, take a listen and take a look at his, at his life. Here is a story from Tom. I'm Chen. Tom, and this is my wife, Bree, and we live and in Bree. Pomona, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. It is the fourth largest city in Alley County. It's bigger than Pasadena, uh, but it is also the second poorest city in Alley County. So it's, that's a lot of poverty over a large population. When I was in college, Isaiah 58 convicted me of God's love for the poor, and I felt like I didn't understand his heart for the poor, and I wanted to because I wanted to understand more of God's heart. And so because of that, um, I moved to Pomona, California, to the inner city, um, to work with the poor and see how God worked and what his love was like. When we were engaged and decided that we would live at or, meet, or below the medium household income level for the nation. Um, we looked at our budget and we realized that one of the first things that was going to get impacted was uh, this honeymoon trip that we had been talking about, this overseas trip. What's amazing is a year later, we get a call from Target and they said, congratulations, you've won our honeymoon giveaway sweepstakes. And they said, and you, you registered for a California pan which we still have. Which we still have. And they said that automatically entered you into the Califon Target giveaway, you know, honeymoon giveaway sweepstakes. What we won was a seven-day, all-expense-paid trip to Tuscany, Italy. It was really amazing. But what I remember from that time was um, Bree turning to me and saying, this is God's confirmation that he will take care of us. He will be generous, and he will give us more than, you know, than we can imagine. And that's been true. I, I had heard from a good friend, um, neighbors that we'd known for 15 years, that they were not living in their apartment anymore, and they were living in their mom's place um, with a heroin addict in the living room and the TV on all night. And I could see in the kids' faces that their life was just crumbling and that they really weren't doing well because of the environment. Even though Irma's a great mom, Jerry's a great dad, um, it just, you, you can't really raise a family in a living room with uh, people coming in and out and heroin needles all around. Rhea and I started thinking about the idea that maybe God was calling us to invite the Raylesses, Jerry and Irma and their kids to, to move in with us. It was amazing to be family together. and. And it was, you know, similar to when we had Jenny live with us, you know, the, the sense of family, her being part of her family, the, the power of family. When the Raylises left, you know, I knew there was emotional challenges for Cadence some of the time, right? Because she did lose some of her space and she did lose some of her toys. And I asked her afterwards, well, what, what did you learn? It was hard, but, um, but then, yeah, but if you let it happen, your heart gets bigger and there's more... It, and there's room for more people, so it's really worth it. People will come to Tom and I sometimes and ask how they live their lives um, 
radically or you know following Jesus um, in a similar way we do and and there's the one answer to that is you really have to ask Jesus what he's given you and what he's asking you to give away and what he's asking you to hold on to so there's no a formula for what kind of life to live there's only a listening to Jesus and a conviction and all you have to do is ask how with what God's given you. Okay, that's better, right? Okay, I don't need to say all that again, do I? Um, uh, so, uh, the context. Uh, Paul is under house arrest. And when you're under house arrest, it's hard to make a living. And so this church that he founded, the church in Philippi, they, they are such a beautiful, generous, uh, uh, generous-hearted church that they took up collection for Paul and they sent it over to Paul. And Paul has a very funny way of receiving the money. He breaks out in a reflective blog, if you will, on contentment. I I can be satisfied in plenty. I can be satisfied having nothing. Okay, that's very interesting, Paul. That's really cool. That's a message in and of itself. But the one word I want to focus on that I think kind of blows me away when I think about it is this. And it has implications for us. Paul says that, again... Finding contentment, learning how to be content when you got a lot, learning how to be content when you got little. He says this, I have learned. That's the word. I've learned to be content in every situation. What's the word? The opportunity? Learned. Now, what is, what is, why, why a big deal in this word? It means that Paul wasn't born this way. Some people have these personalities that no matter what, they're, they're just chill and laid back and just like, you know, they're carefree. I'm not getting the impression that Paul was like that because he said, I have learned. Didn't happen overnight. It took a process. I learned means that there were times where Paul struggled with discontentment. Even Paul himself. There were days when he wasn't happy with what he had. So, we talk about big steps today, you know, radical generosity, like inheritance, big things, great. What about small things on the way of this journey of learning to be content in Jesus? Where no matter what you have, 
you have found your ultimate joy in Christ. And you deliberately give what you have to the poor because there's joy, there's joy, and there's treasure in heaven, and it comes from a heart that's full of compassion. So uh, what I'd like to do is actually not go big for a little bit and just talk about small, practical things. What about this as a first step forward? I had our admin crunch some numbers. Right now, about 30% of our church is giving more than 80% of the finances. What about a strong, definitive step forward on the process of learning to be content? How about tithing? You know, the, the word tithe in and of itself means 10%. And when we tithe, we're saying, God, all of my stuff belongs to you. And I'm giving you this symbolic 10 showing my active worship for all of you. And all of this belongs to you. Here's another idea. Some of you like, give me something practical, Pastor Andrew. Okay, how about this? How about supporting one compassion child? You can go on Compassion International. I, I wish I could show you a picture of one of the, the children that Reina and I are supporting. His name is Dennis Sempeta. He comes from Kenya. And he writes to us about how he's on the way to school and he sees like zebras and giraffes on the way to school. And he's talking to my kids like, what animals do you see on the way to school? You know, like my dad in the morning, he's kind of an animal sometimes. Um, that, that was a connection cross-culturally. And I think it's doing something for their heart. It's actually really good for us. Um, in October, we're going to talk about how to give strategically, how to be really smart in giving money to places and mercy ministries that really need it the most. Uh, when it comes to living simple, how about getting small? How about tracking how much you spend to eat outside? Gary told me uh, that he spends $60 per month and uh, maybe you want to take that and see if you can do that. $60 per month for outside uh, uh, eating. You can have an envelope system. You can have 60 bucks in the envelope beginning of the month. When it's all gone, it's all gone. If there's more in there, you can buy me a gift. That works. Um, so how about that? How about supporting a missionary? They say that, America has most of the funds, and it's going to the places and to the missionaries that actually need it the least. I'm going to spend an entire message blowing that up. But how about supporting a local missionary that's based in Northern California, but going to unreached people groups? I'm actually collecting a list of them, and I'm going to get ready to present them in October. Maybe now we're planting a seed, and you can get ready for that. Now, I, I, you know, I, here, there are some concrete um, how about tithing? How about um, Compassion International sponsoring a child? Uh, how about watching how much you spend on outside food? How about supporting a missionary? You know, um, and uh, so those are really just practicals. But but I wanted to close the message talking about um, you know referring to something that I, I shared 
about my mom and how she grew up in wartime. Let, let me end on this note. Um, you guys, we're not growing up like my mom in wartime, World War II, Taiwan. But we're here in America, and I don't know if it's any different, to be honest with you. If you really think of the gospel and the mission, is it any less urgent than wartime? Now, just imagine, like, my, my mom in, in China or even back here in, in the States during World War II, right? There is a war that's fighting. You're aware of it. You're reading the newspaper every day. You're really engaged. Maybe you've sent your, your sons and your daughters to this war effort. Everything is at stake. You're part of this community. So at home, you're saving. You're not living large. You're saving and you're giving, and you're thinking, and you're praying, because we are at war. Is it any different? Like, right now, today, today, 26,000 kids will die of starvation and diseases that can be prevented. Is that not urgent? Today, 1.5 billion people have never heard the name of Jesus. Now, that makes my heart ache. Never heard the name of Jesus. In America, we, we have that opportunity. But there's places they've never heard the name of Jesus. Is, is, is it any different? Are the stakes any different? Now, I would argue that's even greater. That there's a greater sense of urgency. We live in this wartime. Our captain is Jesus Christ. He, he sacrificed himself, and he's our savior. And he also gave us, not himself, just as savior to receive, but a path to follow. It's a path of pouring out our lives. There is a lot at stake, and we're at war. I want to continue to invite you guys to engage with us during this series, and to continue to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your hearts. We're in this movement led by Jesus Christ. And he is making disciples in our church who love God, love other people, and serve the world. Continue to join us. Incline your hearts to the Spirit. Let's listen and let's obey. Pray with me. Father, it starts with Jesus and it all comes back to Jesus. Lord, we just confess that we are not the hero that Jesus Christ is the hero that gave up his comforts and stepped down from heaven, giving himself entirely to us and to the purposes of God. He is the Savior to receive, and he offers a path to follow. Help us in this series, help us this day, to not just rest on your grace, but because we rest on your grace, to be changed and transformed like Zacchaeus, like the young rich man that could have been, allow us to receive Jesus in our hearts and be enabled to live like him and for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.